This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, who are busy working to promote policies that help entrepreneurs and small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones and more productive ones. And now, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone you may have never heard of, but you're going to love to get to know. His name, Tad Toby. I did go to school, and it was a Catholic school. Essentially, any school other than a Jewish school was a Catholic school in Poland. They had periods when there would be religious instruction, and I was excused from the class at that time, and I was shuttled off to a private room where I was to meet with the rabbi, which I thought was kind of an interesting democratic happening in this all-Catholic school. And in the middle of 1939, my mother and father embarked on a business trip to the United States, which was a rather frequent happening. His father's business was exporting ham and bacon to America. And I was moved to stay with my grandmother while my parents were in the United States. And about a month into my stay with my grandmother, I was informed that I would be going to the United States. And I didn't really fully understand what that meant. And I didn't really fully even understand where it was. But you know, I was eight years old. This was a very exciting development for me. I mean, everybody knew about America, although the details were hazy. So my father's best friend, Norbert Erdeshek, was given the job of transporting me to the United States. And I should also, at this point, clarify that what had been a business trip turned out to be basically a decision to emigrate to the United States. The newspaper accounts then in the United States were very graphic about what was going on in Germany, primarily in Britain, to some extent in Poland. It was in the post-Kristallnacht period where the Germans on the night of Kristallnacht. November 9th, 1938. Vandalized a great many Jewish businesses and Jewish synagogues. And really was, I would say, the first real formal expression of serious anti-Semitism under the Hitler regime. So that kind of frightened my parents. Uh, since they were in the United States reading about it, they had a different perspective than a lot of people in Poland did. In Poland, I would say the Jewish population had sort of a, gee, we've, we've been there before, you know, we've seen these bad times, uh, they too shall pass. Being in New York and reading American media at that time, my parents were not convinced that it too shall pass. And they made a conscious decision to immigrate to the United States on a middle of summer night 
my uncle Norbert and I, he wasn't really my uncle, but he was such a close friend of the family that I sort of viewed him like an uncle. So my uncle Norbert and I set on a train from Warsaw to Paris, which runs right through the center of what was then Nazi Germany. And it was a scary trip because every time there was a stop, members of the SS or the Gestapo... The Nazis' notorious enforcement arms... ...would enter our compartment and uh, demand to see our papers. Your papers, please. And a Polish papers always indicated the religion of the carrier. We got the fish eye from these uh, SS people. It was scary. But they didn't really make too much trouble, and we eventually got off the train in Paris. We really didn't have papers to get on the Queen Mary, which is the ship that my parents had made arrangements for us to travel on out of Cherbourg, France. And we finally got some documents. I don't know whether they were phony documents or real documents, but we got on the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary was a very luxurious ocean liner. But the fancy British ships also had a very unfancy, what I would call, tourist accommodations. And I think that, well, there were several grades. There was first class, there was cabin class, which was like second class, and then there was tourist class, and, and then one category below that, and I think that was the category that we ended up in. And our stateroom, if I can call it that, was about the size of a big closet, had a double bed in it, bunk bed, I should say, and there was barely room enough around the bunk bed to get to the sink and to the door, and we were able to utilize a public toilet facility 50 feet or so down the hall from our accommodations. I remember getting pretty seasick because we were not really permitted to go into the more luxurious quarters, which involved fresh air. And I believe that the room that we were staying in was below the water line. So it was not a fun trip. We land in New York, and because our papers are defective, we're not able to get off the ship. We are boarded onto a ferry boat in New York Harbor, heading for that paradise island called Ellis Island. Spent the night in Ellis Island while they checked us out one way up and down the other, health and documents, everything. And finally ferried us back to New York Harbor the next day where I met my mom. Obviously, uh, it was a very tearful reunion, as you can imagine. She hadn't seen her little boy for months, and I hadn't seen my mom. But they were free. Free from the scourge that was to come. And this is already a heck of an American dreamer's story, but it gets so much better, folks. When we come back, more on the life of Tad Toby here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamers story, Tad Toby, and his story of being an eight-year-old Jewish boy who was forced to leave his homeland of Poland to escape the Nazis. Let's continue the story. I was enrolled in a boys' day camp, had an opportunity to go roller skating in Central Park, you know, ride on the boats, and life was good. It was good until my mother got notification that her father had been murdered while trying to escape from Auschwitz. The Nazi concentration camp, where at least 960,000 Jews would be murdered as part of the Holocaust. And that was a real downer because my mother and father and grandfather were very, very close. I mean, he was the lover of her life, probably more so than even her husband. She uh, was uh, very, very shaken, spent a good portion of every day in tears. And, you know, that was a difficult period for both my dad and myself because mom was going through such a difficult period. Of course, the war now is well underway. And um, in about... June of 1940, my mother and father ran out of money. My dad had done some speculation in the stock market, didn't do well, probably shouldn't have been doing it. And my mother had brought jewelry over, sewed into the linings of her clothes, because she had a feeling that we may not be going back. And so the jewelry was sold, and the family lived on the jewelry, but... uh, the proceeds started to expire, and the family made a decision to move to Los Angeles. The reason being that in Los Angeles, there was a rather significant Jewish-Polish colony, and some of the people offered some assistance in the form of a job to one or both of my parents. So we got in the family four-door sedan Oldsmobile, which we bought used, and decided to make the trip sort of a scenic trip, encompassing the more famous sites that one would see if one traveled west across the United States. So our first stop was Buffalo, New York, and Niagara Falls, and we went from there to Yellowstone Park. Somewhere in there was Mount Rushmore, and then we eventually ended up in San Francisco, where the 1939 World's Fair was underway. There were a lot of things that were put in a patriotic context as we saw these various sites. Certainly, Mount Rushmore was essentially a history lesson involving four great presidents. So I was sort of getting my first taste of U.S. history. Got into the old Oldsmobile and drove to Los Angeles where we rented a one-bedroom apartment down on 475 New Hampshire. I don't know how I remember these things. It was sort of a reality check. We moved out of a rather luxurious Central Park residence to a one-bedroom flat in what is now Koreatown. When we got to moving into this apartment, I slept in the bedroom, and my mother and father slept on a Murphy bed in the living room. So you can see that our status of life 
had diminished rather significantly since this uh, lavish trip that we took across the United States. My father got a job as a night watchman and my mother got a job in a restaurant. I think it was primarily busing and washing dishes. I would say that our standard of living had become, I think modest would be an understatement. At that time, however, one of the people that we met that was a Polish-Jewish background was a Hollywood film producer, and he suggested the possibility that there could be more in life for this young Tad, that he could actually be on those big screens with their moving pictures that he took in, like this one. A movie called uh, Tomorrow the World that pictured a young Nazi kid moving into a Long Island neighborhood and recruiting the neighbors to spy you know, on the people that are landlords. Or the movie that I ultimately started in, which was called The Greenie, and pictured a little refugee kid coming upon a sandlot baseball game on the east side of New York, getting permission from a very reluctant father to go down and meet the boys. Predictably, I get beat up because I'm so what am I doing nosing around this clubhouse that they had built? And my movie career sort of blossomed, and I became the most successful earner in my family because I was making like $25 a day, and my mother and father were probably making something on the order of $40 a week. And life starts to continue as an all-American kid movie star at that and super patriot at this point because now World War II breaks out for the United States. The Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and virtually every one of the kids in my school were out there selling war stamps which were a kind of a lower denomination of currency that was convertible when you reached a certain level of dollars into U.S. war bonds. So now we're living in the middle of the war, and uh, I think this is when the patriotism came into full bloom, because now <laughs> I'm spending all my spare time, I'm selling war stamps, I joined the Cub Scouts, and the indoctrination at this point is complete, which is a good thing. I mean, I've I, I'm very proud to say that I've retained my sense of patriotism to this very day. My parents who felt that going to uh, studio school in and out and between shoots was not the best education that I could get and got to the point where my father said, son, have you had any thoughts about college? I said, yes, Dad, I'm going to UCLA. And he says, you're going to Stanford. And I said, yes, sir. Because I was in a very authoritarian family. And if my father said jump, I would say how high. So he made the choice for me. And unfortunately, I did not get into Stanford. I got this notification that is kind of a form letter that Stanford sends out 
to the effect that we have so many applicants and gosh, you know, you're so qualified, but we can't take everybody. However, we are running a provisional program. It basically involves going to Stanford immediately upon graduating from high school for the summer. And if you survive that, we will admit you as a full-fledged student. So that's what I did. Stanford was on the quarter system, and my parents would give me a check for $500 to cover all my expenses for a quarter, including tuition and books, including housing, including food, and including entertainment. And I lived well. When the fraternities were conducting their rushing, that meant essentially recruiting their lower class pledges, and I was heavily recruited by Sigma Nu. However, I had a problem. In checking out Sigma Nu, I came to the realization that they were founded in Virginia in like 1850 or something like that, and had very strong discriminatory clauses in their charter. To put it in very simple terms, no Jews, no blacks, you know the drill. So I felt that I had to disclose to my prospective fraternity brothers that I was not only a Jew, I was a Polish Jew, a refugee. So I said, look, your charter precludes you from accepting me as a Sigma Nu. And the response to that was, the charter. Okay? So with, with the charter, I felt that was a fairly strong statement. Indeed it was. And what a remarkable story this is. Tad's story now through college, a fraternity. And my goodness, if you like it now, it just keeps getting better. Our American Dreamers series, Tad Toby's story, here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. To hear all that we do, sign up for our free newsletter. Give us your email. We'll give you our best five stories every week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these commercial messages. Continue with our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories and with the Polish immigrant Tad Toby's story. At this point, he's attending Stanford University in beautiful Palo Alto, California, and he's a pledge with the fraternity Sigma Nu. I guess the word is hazing. And the hazing was awful. If they did that today, then I'll be in jail. I would just give you some of the things we had to do to go through this indoctrination. We had to wear a raw onion around our neck. And whenever one of the active members said, take a bite out of your apple pledge, we have to take a bite out of our apple. And keep in mind, we're going to class while all this is going on. 
But nobody wanted to sit next to us because we stank so badly. Not only from the onions, but we were prohibited from taking showers. We were required whenever one of the seniors said, assume the position pledge. Assume the position. Assume the position pledge meant you bend over and grab your ankles and get whacked with about a one-inch paddle. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? The whole process was meant to significantly debase and humiliate us, which they succeeded in doing. So now I'm a Sigma Nu, I'm a sophomore at Stanford. I get a letter from my father and he says, what is your major? And I said, well, I thought I'd major in Spanish. And he said, come down to Los Angeles immediately. My mother and he gave me about a three hour lecture about what kind of ambition did their son have? What kind of a ne'er-do-well was I gonna be? This was not meant, by the way, to prejudice the Spanish language. It was that now my father is a senior corporate officer for a major U.S. company, and his son is majoring in Spanish. So it was a non sequitur. It was a period of study. It was a period of drinking. It was a period of playing pranks on unaware fraternity brothers. Uh, it was the greatest period of my life, by far, looking back on it. Had incredible parties, including the baby party, where uh, everybody dressed up in diapers and bibs, and came into the fraternity house on a slide that had two legs configured on either side of the slide and as you came down the slide people would scream welcome baby and then it was back to the real world where tad got very real i've had 14 separate careers uh, maybe we should go through what they were my first career was with ampex an electronics company Number two was after I was terminated in a rather unfriendly fashion from Ampex because of my great invention of using popcorn to pack sensitive motors, I received a, well, wait a minute, I'll back up a little bit. My first career was before Ampex, and that was the three years that I spent in the United States Air Force. So that would have been number one. Number two was Ampex. Number three, after I was unceremoniously dumped by Ampex, was working for an old line electric heating and control manufacturer. And then came even more manufacturing companies. The next job that I had was I opened my shop as a real estate broker, creating investment partnerships. I developed a relationship with Joe and Steffi Corrette and became their personal investment counselor. That led me then to becoming the president and chief executive officer of their textile and apparel company, which had fallen on very tough times. And Joe prevailed upon me to come in as a turnaround 
executive, and I said, Joe, I, I don't know anything about, I know nothing about the apparel and textile industry. And Joe said, you're the best businessman I've ever known, you'll figure it out. So I spent the next six years, probably the hardest six years of my life, turning around this very, very sick company. After the workout, which ended when I sold the company to Levi Strauss in 1979, I became involved with what became the Corret Foundation. In about 1982, I had occasion to initially become a minority partner in a startup of the United States Football League. A second professional football league. And eventually became the owner and a charter founder of the league and the owner of the Oakland Invaders which lasted until 1986. I guess my 10th career was resuming real estate, what then became known as the Woodmont Companies. After the Woodmont Companies, I became a philanthropist, and more recently, I have become a principal in the development of a new basketball league. At 87 years old. Known as Three Ball, three-man basketball, the way we all learn to play it, which is going to become an Olympic sport in the year 2020. How many have I got? Somewhere around 1990, I became honorary consul for the Republic of Poland, and that gets me up to 13. And the 14th is buried in there somewhere. Oh my God, I completely forgot. My first career, a movie actor when I was uh, 10 years old. That's it, 14. How many people that you know have 14 careers? I'm uh, looking forward to number 15, but I don't know what it's gonna be yet. You know, I think money is a very damaging element in our society because a lot of it is spent frivolously. A lot of it ruins youngsters that become heirs in wealthy families. I think money has to be very carefully handled. Woody Hayes with his philosophy of three yards in a cloud of dust. Woody Hayes, the famed football coach of the Ohio State University. That basically that meant that he was a proponent of the running game. People would ask Woody Hayes, Coach Hayes, why are you so intensely committed to the running game, to the exclusion of something that is a very important part of the modern game of football? And he says, listen, when you throw a football in the air, three things can happen and two of them are bad. Now I have a Toby corollary. When one leaves this earth with significant wealth, Four things can happen, and three of them are bad. One is your money can go to the United States of America, to the government, in terms of state taxes. Most people are desirous of avoiding that, I believe. Number two is you can screw up your kids. Number three is you can have somebody that has a philosophy totally different from yours give it away for you. Or you can give it away during your lifetime. That's the path I've chosen. And by the way, Tad has given over $200 million away thus far, 
Another Jewish American who's given away almost all of his wealth is the founder of Home Depot, Bernie Marcus, and we profiled his story here not too long ago as well. In our story on Bernie's life, he told us that Jews only make up 2% of America's population, but make up 18% of its donations. By the way, these are great untold stories and how we all, all are inspired by each other's stories. Tad said that Bernie shared with him his private interview collection that documents his life and legacy, and it inspired Tad to document his own with a book. When we continue, more of the life story of Tad Toby, an immigrant Jewish boy from Poland who escaped Nazism to lead a life one could only dream of here in America. More after these messages. American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Tad Toby's incredible life story, from a young Polish Jew escaping Nazism to building a rewarding life in America with 14 different careers, and well, I can only guess more to come, Tad now dives into his efforts to give away all of his wealth. A great percentage of the Jewish people were murdered in the Holocaust. I think Poland had a Jewish population before the war of about three and a half million, and about 250,000 survived. After the war, Poland was under communist rule. Soviet Russia's rule. And during the Israel war, the 1967 wars, Russia was heavily aligned with the Arab republics around Israel. So the communist government in Poland essentially took steps to try to cause the Jewish population to leave Poland. What they did is they basically made it impossible for Jewish people to teach in universities. They closed down Jewish businesses. Any form of employment was essentially closed to the Jews. And that did in fact accomplish exactly what the communist government of Poland was seeking to do which was to cause the Jews to leave. And probably at that point, three quarters of the Jewish population left Poland. Must have been 150 to 200,000 Jews evacuated to various parts of the world, including Israel and the United States. My mother, who had not been back to Poland, uh, really, kept claiming that she never wanted to go back to Poland, but the force of her tie to Poland was just impossible for her to overcome, and so she did agree to come to Poland in 1977. It was kind of a sad period because we walked the streets that she had walked as a little girl. Needless to say, the friends that she had walked hand in hand with on those streets were all gone all dead. Poland altogether in 1977 uh, was a very depressing place. It was gray. Everything was gray. The buildings were gray, the sky was gray, the people were gray. People walked around, you know, sullen. Nobody was smiling. It was a very unhappy period. The next chapter really involves the year 2000. I got 
very interested in what had happened and what was happening in Poland. Whereas Israel is certainly headlined as the Jewish home at this point. For centuries, for better than a thousand years, the Jewish home was Poland. And so I wanted to have a sense about why is that not historically important? Why is it, we always talk about this and that happening Jewishly in Israel, but other than the Holocaust, uh, the Jewish experience in Poland is basically unknown. And I thought that was a very important part of our history, of our culture. And another thing that I was very much knew about was that about 80% of all of the Jews in the United States are of Polish origin. So there was plenty of reason that would essentially propel my interest in Poland. My prior experiences with Poland were not what you could call encouraging to, <laughs> to launch a rebirth of the Jewish people. And what we've done now in the 15 years since that is really quite amazing. Tad has given 450 grants to over 100 organizations, from art museums to synagogues, community centers, anything and everything to restore Jewish life in Poland. We have been very significantly involved in the Museum of the History of Polish Jews. For years, there was a sign on this piece of property, this weather-beaten, tired old sign that says, Site of the New Jewish Museum. And that's all I ever saw every time I came to Poland, because the Warsaw Ghetto was right adjacent to the site of this so-called Jewish Museum. It sort of became the butt of a joke. You know, this was the project that was never going to happen. And it wouldn't have if not for a Polish president who said, enough is enough. Let's do this. And for philanthropists like Tad, who made it a reality. We did build it, and the people came. We're running now. Annual attendance at the museum is running at about a million people a year. And we would expect in a very short period of time that attendance to the museum would exceed a million and a half people a year. And just as much of Tad's philanthropy strikes closer to home. He personally paid for the San Francisco Opera to simulcast its performances to the San Francisco Giants baseball park where you can sit in the outfield and watch Mozart on the big screen. And over 250,000 people have done just that. He's been a supporter of Hillsdale College, the World War II Museum, and over $50 million of medical research. And there's one particular project that really struck close to home when American film director Steven Spielberg decided to capture video testimonies of survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators of the Holocaust. Spielberg actually got to the point where he had collected something on the order of 
55,000 of these transcripts. I got very interested in it because one of these transcripts involved my sister, Anita. And she was a Holocaust survivor. We adopted her. She became my sister. She was essentially my cousin. So her mother and her father were among those early victims that had been murdered by the Nazis. Fortunately, moments from the time when they might have seized my sister Nita as well, an order of Catholic nuns was able to essentially embrace her and hide her out during the entire war. And in fact, when she came, when she came to the United States and came over here, we had to work very hard to convince her not to become a nun. But uh, once she started going to school and meeting kids her own age, that was not an issue for very long. Around 1985, I was to be the recipient of the Scopus Award given by the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And the award was to be given to me in the Grand Ballroom of the Fairmont Hotel, probably the largest ballroom in San Francisco. And Mel Swig, who was the owner of the Fairmont Hotel, presided over the event. Mel got up and said, okay, we're going to start the formal proceedings now. And I'd like to start by inviting a gentleman who is just anxious to come up here and say a few words about his son. So my father, who is a beautiful gentleman, just elegantly dressed, just an epitome of a European gentleman, strode up to the lectern and started out and said, ladies, and never got the word gentleman out. So he dropped dead, fell over backwards. And so that was a, a sort of a, I would say a pretty difficult time for my family. Actually, it was a difficult time for everybody that was there. But it was also symbolic of the fact that my parents had a great deal of pride in what I had already accomplished at that time. Certainly, I never did anything by myself. And I, I don't want this to sound like I'm receiving an Oscar and giving, you know, credit to all of the people everywhere that made it happen, but there is truth to that. Uh, well, they say no man is an island unto himself. I've been blessed really by having wonderful people surround me in my real estate company. My five most senior people have been with me an average of 25 years. I try to make them participants in whatever scheme to enrich ourselves we can create. Most of the people that have been with me for a long time have uh, had an opportunity to co-invest with me. All of the people that have been with me have participated in extremely generous retirement plans. I just had a bookkeeper that retired. She had been with me a long time and she retired with I think $800,000. My wonderful secretary, Vilia, is retiring to go back to Germany because her mother is rather sick. She's been with me for 15 years. And she's retiring with some $650,000. So 
Nobody that's been with me for any length of time walks out of here without a significant amount of resources to continue their lives in whatever way they want. And great work as always on that, Alex. And what an American dreamer's story. And by the way, you can watch Tad's sister, Anita Hirsch's testimony, and all of the USC Shoah Foundation's testimonies on their website. Just Google USC Shoah Foundation, and you won't believe the material. And by the way, Poland is known as the country that lost World War II twice. What a story. Tad Toby's story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week, transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address and we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being an SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I can, I can just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in this air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they, they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. 
Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS day. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center, Cessna, November Tango Alpha. You got a ground speed readout for us? Now, Center would like to say, who cares? Get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna, November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, 90 knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed readout for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two, zero knots on the ground. And right after that, a Navy F-18 out of Lemoore popped up on frequency. And you knew as a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and a million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 6-2, knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> And I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die. They must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I will upset Walter, and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment, I heard a click of the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. And his best innocent voice L.A. Center, Aspen 3-0, have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like, oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 3-0, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. What I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice, and that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Shule telling a story 
and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep, like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping, um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get the full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt we're tired. And so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super duper um, sleep deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap and you'll just fall asleep 
at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at how, the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need something to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Hot, yeah. Hot, you fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way, um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but, yep. uh, but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Cause this I thought was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're, you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their, um, control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes, right? So then your head falls over and then you jerk up. Okay. So this is terrible because your brain does not go into um, a good deep sleep and you're just, it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep. You're just like falling and rising and falling and rising. You can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though, that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to. There's some some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is going to, it's going to, it's not going to do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's of course when the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap? We're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion. Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglass. is the worst. That is so. So, what's the best way? The the very best way to take a nap. So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan, and even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you. For, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in. And so they're probably not getting quality sleep 
um, and so are a little bit in a zone all the time. Um, but so you want to be in a, obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the sixties. Um, you know, ideally you want to be, you want to be prone because when you're laying down, um, your body can, the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up. And you want to be in a dark, space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like being a madman or whatever, and, you know, you could just close your door, lay down on your couch to take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid afternoon nap is good, um, is that places like, um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade, um, they forbade the nap and the productivity didn't go up. So there's, there's this, they call it a sleep wake window that opens up in the afternoon and your it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm and it just opens up. And, and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office, where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. Um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen? Yes, I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and you're by yourself. And they're they're like in fifteen minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep, isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do fifteen minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Doctor Dingy said. He said, "Quote: Being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add." He says. And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks. And by the way, Dr. Gingies, that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a whole yeah, book on this. He wrote a yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print, but he's written other books as well and lots of papers, but he's so into this subject and we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google, you know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward-thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges. Um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell a lot of stories about family, lots more about generosity. This next story combines both. Howard Yusuk is the Manhattan Institute's Vice President for Research and Publications and author of the forthcoming book, Who Killed Civil Society? Today, Howard shares with us a personal story, how the agency saved my father. The biggest mystery of my childhood was the question of how my father had survived his. Though the details were fuzzy, the facts seemed clear. An auto accident outside Trenton, in which his parents were seriously injured, orphaned, not long after in South Philadelphia, in the depth of the Depression. Later raised in foster homes, and yet, by 18, off by streetcar to engineering school, and after World War II, to life in the middle class. What had made it possible? The most intriguing explanation involved something he called the agency. Once a year, he'd say, the agency took us to get a suit, one pair of long pants, one pair of knickers, or the agency even paid to get my teeth fixed. In a thousand ways, the world of my father's childhood amid the row houses of South Philly, a world where fish were kept alive in the bathtub so they'd stay fresh, where teenagers enjoyed classical music, where sunflower seeds were the junk food of choice, is as gone as any European Jewish dental. But to me, the agency was the most distant part of it. My own father, it appeared, had been raised without parents and without the support of public funds under the auspices of a charitable organization. What exactly was the agency? My father provided the crucial clue. Once a month, he recalled, an older woman connected with the agency would arrive in a chauffeur-driven black Cadillac to check on him. He remembered her name, Mrs. Sternberger. I found her traces a few blocks from Independence Hall at the Balch Institute for Ethnic Studies, which houses the records of Philadelphia's myriad Jewish charities. On the founding board of directors of the Juvenile Aid Society, I discovered was a woman named Matilda K. Sternberger. And looking through the Juvenile Aid Society's pile of typed case records, I turned up one from March 2, 1934, proceedings of its placement committee's monthly meeting, which took up the case of Bernard Husick, my father, and his elder sister, Stella. The library will close in 10 minutes. It's a powerful thing to come across such a record only minutes before library closing time. It's sobering to read about one's own family as the object of intervention and help, especially when you're used to identifying with those providing the help, and even more so when such records contain powerful revelations as these did. Turns out my father's parents had not died at the same time as I'd been told. His father had outlived his mother and become a single father responsible for two young children aged five and 10 in the early years of the Depression. I learned that in June 1932, three years before the Social Security Act became law, at a time when state and local governments provided only short-term emergency relief, my grandfather had first turned to private charity for support. His situation was 
More like that so common today, a single-parent family in search of help, a family for which outsiders were deciding whether help was deserved, and if so, what form that help should take. By the time it considered the case of my father, I learned the Juvenile Aid Society had been making those kind of decisions for more than 20 years. It had grown out of something called the Young Women's Union, which was part of a movement beginning in the 1880s in which, as Philadelphia's Jewish exponent later wrote, the noxious tenements of South Philadelphia were invaded by an unlikely little army of well-bred, carefully nurtured Jewish young ladies from the safely upper-middle-class environs of Spring Garden Street. Led by banking heiress Bella Loeb Selig, the women's union began to move from children's recreation and nursery programs to an effort its members called baby-snatching or child-saving, by which they meant persuading the juvenile court, which they helped found in 1901, to release children in trouble into their custody. To handle these kids, the women's union gave birth to the Juvenile Aid Society, the agency, in 1911. By 1932, it was a big organization, paying for between 350 children to 450 each year to be raised in private foster homes. It was part of a larger system of some 80 private nonprofit and religious organizations which cared for the vast majority of abused, abandoned, or orphaned children in Pennsylvania. Through the Juvenile Aid Society, the wealthy German Jewish women on its board expressed their sense of responsibility for the children of poor Russian immigrants, their generic term for Eastern European Jews. So it was that women named Deutsch and Guckenheimer, members, many of them, of the city's grand Moroccan-style Temple of Reform Judaism, Congregation Rodef Shalom, came to take some responsibility for children named Lazarowitz and Katz, then piling into South Philadelphia and crowding it with what ultimately would be more than 200 small dark synagogues squeezed in among the row houses. These charitable women can be thought of as Jewish Victorians, combining a religious impulse with the Victorian commitment to child saving. They were moved by the Talmudic injunction that the blessed man is the man that brings up an orphan boy or girl until marriage, and fearing that the Russians would abandon Judaism as they acculturated to America, they required all children they assisted to attend religious schools. For them, religion was the guarantor of the bourgeois values and the self-discipline they cherished. Moral behavior, the agency's literature observes, is the result of right habit and daily practice. Cultivate the child's natural desires for leadership, for justice, for independence, for self-respect, for hero worship. Morality is an inner driving force. Religion is an inner light and revelation. These cannot be forced from without. Open the windows of the soul through which the inner splendor may shine. The agency saw itself as a retail helper, so to speak, intervening with individual families, not to change the social system, but to help children find their place in it. Its leaders were willing not just to support foster homes, but to make a personal commitment to visit children themselves and assess foster families, to form personal bonds with those being helped. Their meticulous records note the names of the child and the name of the visitor. Miss Baum visiting Rose Heimowitz, Mrs. Loeb visiting Benjamin Chernikoff, Mrs. Zucker visiting Meyer Balchin. 
They were a small group taking on a big task. There had been 15,000 Jews in Philadelphia in 1880. By 1920, there were 200,000. The agency's main strategy was child placement, foster care, which it championed as a preferred alternative to orphanages. Children in bad circumstances would be taken in by loving families fairly paid for their efforts. As a 1919 Russell Sage Foundation report put it, child placing in families was the most important development in child welfare work during the last half of the 19th century. In March of 1934, one of the children placed by this movement would be my own father. And after the break, we'll hear more of the story, How the Agency Saved My Father, from Howard Yusuk who has written an entire book about private charity called Who Killed Civil Society. Look for it on Amazon in the coming months. More on Howard's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Howard Yusuk's story of how a private Jewish charity known as the Agency saved his father from what might have been a terrible life as an orphan. The Juvenile Aid Society's solution to the inevitable danger of child abuse in private homes rested on the personal efforts of the agency's volunteer home-finding and placement committees. Its home-finding committee rejected twice as many potential replacement homes as it approved. Each board member visited 30 to 40 children each month. The agency readily increased its payment to the foster mother of the mischievous Bass Boys, aged 8 and 13, from $22 to $25 a month. Come on, cry! <laughs> It granted an increase as well to Jack Ginsburg's foster mother in view of his mental retardation and bedwetting. 23 years after the agency's birth, founding director Matilda Cohn Sternberger first visited Bernard Husick and his elder sister Stella of 2328 South 3rd Street. The heiress to a fortune her mother's family had made selling Civil War uniforms, Mrs. Sternberger was by then widowed and had given up the grand mansion on 15th Street, where she'd lived with her husband, to share an apartment with her sister Dorothy, also widowed, just off Rittenhouse Square. Then as now, it was among Philadelphia's best addresses, boasting a doorman and out front four cast iron hitching posts. She routinely supervised 30 children and sometimes reported more visits than that 
in a given month. My father's foster care was a result of the death of his mother and the financial decline of his father with the onset of the Depression. His father, Abraham Husid, was a presser in clothing plants on Philadelphia's Hart Street, which housed dozens of small family-owned firms in four- and five-story buildings, Jaffe Brothers, Cantor Brothers, Saul Glazer and Company, and which today houses similar firms employing Asian immigrants. Though he spoke only Yiddish and could not read or write even that, my grandfather was part of Philadelphia's $1 billion a year textile industry, then the largest in any city in the world. When Abraham Husid first requested a plan in June 1932, 20 months after his wife's death, the agency was sympathetic. It regularly provided widowers with support, even with a housekeeper to hold a household together, and it readily approved his request. But he did not use the money to keep the household together. The record of the meeting of the Juvenile Aid Society of Philadelphia in March of 1934 tells the story of a period in my father's life so bleak that he would never find it easy to discuss. He'd speak of himself in the third person. That was a scared little boy. The agency's records make clear why, referring to his father Abraham. Mr. Husick's third wife had turned them out of the home because he was unemployed and she was unwilling and unable to care for the children. Both children were very unhappy in the home of their stepmother who mistreated them. All three, the 55-year-old father with the 13-year-old daughter and the 8-year-old son, wandered around with the children boarded, presumably with money from the agency, in a series of different homes. At other times, Abraham Husick apparently did not place his children anywhere. It was depression time. He couldn't get a job, my father would recall. I remember the crowds of people. Who wants to work for 25 cents an hour? Who wants to work for 20 cents an hour? Despite it all, my father remembers his father warmly from those times, as a man who told him stories, took him to synagogue, and whom he recalls rolling cigarettes, father and son using the rolling machine together. One of those cigarettes smoldered one evening in Abe Husick's mattress in the boarding house where he and his children were staying. And when the mattress caught fire, only his sister Stella awoke, leading her father and brother, as in a dream, to the street and saving their lives. That situation came to the attention of the placement committee of the agency, meeting in room 209 of the Jewish Federation building on 9th Street in Philadelphia in March 1934. The report of the proceedings of that day was a harsh indictment of my grandfather. Placement is now being requested, reads the report, because Mr. Husick has proven to be a shiftless, irresponsible person, and it is necessary that a permanent plan be made for the children to give them a measure of security. Even after their placement, Stella and Bernard continued to visit their father. On New Year's Eve 1935, the day he died, Stella found him, unconscious, on the floor of the rooming house in which he was living above a butcher's shop at 4th and Wolf in South Philly. He had complained for a while, my father recalls, of rectal pain. When the 15-year-old girl and her 10-year-old brother worked their way through the bureaucracy and corridors of the Philadelphia General Hospital the next morning, someone would explain to them in Yiddish that he was tote, dead. But the brilliant girl would overhear the doctors and remember 60-plus years later, prostate hypertrophy, leading to the inability to urinate with blood poisoning the result. One can only wonder whether, had she and her brother still been living with him, whether they might have saved him. 
the condition was surgically treatable even then, and whether there would have been no burial on New Year's Day 1936 in a pauper's grave, such was the fate of the shiftless and irresponsible in 1935. As for me, my middle name is Abel in memory of Abe. Whatever his failings, my father did not fail to honor him as Jewish custom would have it. And Abe's death provided a warning for me more than 60 years later because a physician dutifully listed prostate hypertrophy as the cause of his death. I was led to consider whether that swelling could have been owed to prostate cancer and to seek the tests that identified my own cancer at the earliest, most treatable stage. By the time of their father's death, the agency had arranged a long-term placement for Bernard and Stella at the home of a barber and his wife, Louis and Miriam Grisport, who owned a corner row house at 3rd and Fitzgerald Streets near the southern edge of South Philly. One factor that made the agency's placement system work was the fact that low-income Philadelphians commonly weren't apartment dwellers but instead lived in and owned their own row homes. They had mortgages to pay and, with the Depression, were willing to rent rooms to a variety of comers, foster children included. In keeping with agency rules, my father and his sister had to have their own rooms, a luxury at the Grisboards, where a married couple with a child boarded together in a single room. My father took advantage of his tiny room to have a desk at which to study, even to set up a chemistry set. In other respects, he and his sister were better off than their street-corner peers who were not in the agency's care. The agency provided medical care and psychological testing. My father can recall being much affected by hearing the psychologist who tested him at age 10 remarked, this is a pretty smart kid. The agency sent its wards eggs and milk, beds and bedding, and it paid for two weeks at the Jewish Federation's summer camp. My father's memories include the names of the cabins, each named for a different college, including D for the Drexel Institute of Technology, to which he would eventually take the streetcar from the Grisboards to attend. For her part, Mrs. Sternberger's hope was to lead the children she supervised up the social ladder. My father's strongest memory of Mrs. Sternberger's talks with him in the Grisboards' front parlor was her urging that when he succeeded as an adult, he must always remember his own charitable obligations. She would recite all these other cases that she had had, other people who had been like me, who had now made it and were big contributors. My father did not forget the advice of Mrs. Sternberger, never failing to raise money each year for Jewish charities in his adopted city of Cleveland, where he had indeed become financially successful. Nor did his sister Stella forget the advice of her benefactress either. Continuing even in her late 70s to volunteer, she traveled back to South Philadelphia to teach English to new Asian immigrants, often passing by the scenes of her own childhood along the way. As for the agency itself, it had, by 1942, been merged into a Philadelphia-wide Association for Jewish Children and ultimately became part of the Jewish Children's and Family Service, provider of a great range of assistance to many, including hundreds of children at places now with financial support from a county contract in foster care. But because it does not receive all its funding from government, it continues to chart its own way in developing programs as well. It even continued to receive funds from the estates of some of the board members of my father's era, including, as recently as 1993, $23,000 from the sale of utility stock that had belonged to the estate 
of Matilda K. Sternberger. The money Mrs. Sternberger dictated should go toward the purchase of radios, televisions, books for the blind, or other recreational devices for the infirm elderly. Mrs. Sternberger had anticipated the agency's future emphasis. It would go on to assist some 4,000 Jewish elderly each year and employ 500 volunteers as friendly visitors to them. It no longer uses volunteers to visit the children for whom it cares, and it must not incorporate religion into its approach to those children. A former vice president of the agency, warm and enthusiastic and well-versed in its history, once told me he believes that volunteers wouldn't have that much to offer the black and Hispanic children of drug-addicted mothers for whom the agency's paid staff now cares. The cultural barriers, he said, are just too great. Maybe so, but one wonders whether they are any greater than those that separated two orphaned children in South Philadelphia from a woman arriving in her black Cadillac all those many years ago. And thanks to Howard Yusuk and this terrific story about his father. Both of their stories and the story of American generosity here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. Just give us your email. We'll give you our five best stories every week. Again, this is Our American Stories.